Dude, you and me have been on these diets where we're like calorie counting, and um, I was doing pretty good. And then I had two Thanksgiving dinners to go to, and I went to the first one, and I had very, you know, moderate portions, and I had one plate, no seconds. And I'm like, oh, I got it because I got another uh, Thanksgiving meal I'm going to at my parents. And I went to the second one and had a relatively sane proportion that I dolled out. But then I was like, oh, let me have a second helping of mashed potatoes. And maybe I'll have one thin slice of pumpkin pie. The next thing I know, I'm 4,500 calories into some Cherry Garcia Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> eating the the, le- the old goldfish that were in the back of the pantry like a goddamn junkie in the middle of the night like a fucking werewolf, dude. Really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Yeah. It's hard. Once the floodgate opens, when you're when you're really trying to stick to a diet, it's... If you fuck it up, it's just all bets are off. I was feeling horrible. I, if I would have fucked and killed a hooker, I wouldn't have felt as bad as I felt the next day. <laughs> I mean, I would have felt pretty bad if I'd have done that, but not as bad as I was feeling after I ate almost 5,000 calories worth of bullshit. Yeah. Well, I've done. I've been there before. I did not do it this year. I was pretty good. Dude, you and me did it one night where we ate, what, 90 hot what 90 pizza what were those fucking things called pizza rolls you and me stopped at heb on the way home and got 90 pizza rolls and cooked them up and sat was that when we watched fucking martyrs <laughs> well we've done that a few t- i regret to say we've done that a few times that might have been where we're watching uh Amadeus. whatever it was we watched something and then we went through those ro- and then there were none left over when we were done you know what I think it might have been? Remember that movie Headhunters that we watched? No. Uh, it's like a foreign film about the dude who steals... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I watched that alone. But we had talked about that movie, how horrible and fucked up it was. So there are 220 calories in six pizza rolls, and we split <laughs> 90. Dude, and I know, I know I ate more than you did. I probably ate 50, and you probably ate 40. Oh, uh, well... Those were the nights. Those were the shame nights. We also we also had another shame night where we'd go by the Jack in the Box and get the whatever the combo was, and then we would add ten tacos to it. <laughs> ten. You can't order less. If you're at a if you're at a Jack in the Box and it's past two a.m., the least number of tacos you can order is ten. <laughs> That's the least. Any less than that. What's the point? Well, it's like Don't even go dollar, there. So it's impossible to resist. Man, I, w- I went there not that long ago, maybe two months ago. Al- Dude, check this out. I went to Jack in the Box alone at around midnight and went not through the drive-thru. I went into the store completely empty. Nobody, Nobody's in a Jack in the Box where I live at midnight. Sat there alone and ate six fucking tacos (laughs) and when you're in a jack-in-the-box at night alone everywhere you look there's a ghost image of you eating 
fucking tacos alone in a jack-in-the-box because all the windows reflect yeah reflect the monster in the middle of the in the middle of the room this sounds like the new richard linklater film by the way it's like a it's like a fucking francis bacon painting dude yeah, <laughs> it's the the lighting in a jack in a box at midnight when you're eating tacos is exactly like the darkest Francis Bacon painting in any museum. I've ordered so much food at one of those late night things where the the person taking the order gave me a look like, "Really, man? Really? <laughs> you okay? <laughs> Are you taking this to your family? No, no, no. I'll have it all for here. Oh, anyone else coming in in a minute? Are they in the car? No, no, no. It's for me. I'll be having it here. Thank you." Good God! Well, I feel I feel good. I'm, I've lost like twenty two, twenty three pounds, and I I kept it pretty tight and right over Thanksgiving. It was really hard, but you're doing a good job. I'm worried about how much weight you're losing in such a short period of time. I'm telling you, dude, it's not like your body has set a marker where you started losing that weight so quickly, and it's not going to reset that marker until you get back to that weight. So I would read up on it and figure out if there's a way to reset that marker in your brain once you lose the weight. Because every time I've lost a bunch of weight like that, it sets up this thing where I'm starving always. I haven't been starving one time in the last 33 days. So I, I, under, I understand. I, I feel like we have this conversation every time I give you an update. And I, we got to stop. All right. Because... I've I've not been hungry. I've been eating. I've just been eating good food. You know what I'm saying? I'm not starving myself. I'm not juicing. I'm not fasting. I'm eating every day. All right. I all right, I won't I won't bring it up anymore. <laughs> but I'm I'm worried about it. Why? Why are you so worried about it? I don't know. I worry about everything. I I, I find things to worry about, and then I worry about them. That's one of because I care about you, and uh, I know how much you care about how you look and. Uh, I'm the same way. I, I, and uh, I just don't want you to, you know, I want you to feel good about yourself. Well, the way for me to feel good about myself is to be thin. The way for me to be thin is to make a really big lifestyle change. And there are just things I can't eat and drink on the reg. So it just comes down to, am I willing to grow up and make permanent changes to my relationship with food? You know what I mean? Right. I will say this about the food stuff. It's similar to drinking, and it's similar to sex stuff for me, in that the minute I make a decision to not try to get away with anything, my behavior changes. So, like, even after I went crazy on Thanksgiving and ate all that stuff, I didn't do it that night, but the next morning, when I woke up, first thing I did was I put in every single thing that I ate into my calorie counter, and I looked at it, and I go, that's what happened yesterday. Yeah, you got to deal with it. And what ends up happening is that the next day, when you look at that bag of Cheetos, I think of that feeling and, and know, like, if I eat those Cheetos, I'm going to put them into this app. I'm going to look at the app and I'm going to feel horrible. And it, that's the only thing that stops the behavior. Same with, like, when I was fooling around a lot. As soon as I made the decision to tell on myself on every indiscretion that I did, uh, it stopped because then it would be like, do I want to fool around with this person? Because I know I'm going to tell my girlfriend about it. And I would be like, no. The only time I would fool around with somebody is if I go, well, I'll, I'll do it and then I'll get away with it. Nobody will know. Nobody will be the wiser. But the problem is I'll be the wiser 
And I know that I'll be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't know who they're in a relationship with, and I won't feel connected to them, and the relationship will die. So as soon as I am going to tell on myself, no matter what the behavior, it changes the behavior. And that's like one of the, I learned it in AA, because that's one of the 12 steps where you make an inventory of what you've done, and then you look at it, and then you go tell people, hey, this is what I did. And then the you don't want to tell people what you did again, so you don't do it anymore. It's real simple. No, no, it's great. It's great advice, and you and I have been talking about that for a long time, and I, I particularly have grown fond of the idea that even if you think you're getting away with it, meaning um, whatever it is, if you're cheating on your... If you're cheating on your calorie counting app, you can fool your phone, but you can't fool the mirror, and you can't fool how your no. pants feel. And if you're if you're um, having an affair or cheating on someone that you love, they may not know, but you something inside of you that there is access to you that you are denying them by living that lie. Yeah. And then if you do that enough, intimacy dies, and then what are you doing anyway? So that's an idea that you kind of told me about years ago that I struggle with, but I've really come around to, and it's really true. Because it affects yourself and how you deal with yourself, because you have to live with yourself, unless you're a psychopath, which I know that you're not. And then it affects the people that you really care about and do want to be close with. So it just it starts to clean things up in a big way. But you got but it's like anything, you gotta do the work. Well the metaphor that I use, especially when it comes like with with like having affairs, the metaphor that I that I work that I that I work with in my mind or what that works for me is the idea that like when you get into a relationship, it's by, uh, it's like buying a brand new car. It smells great. looks great. Drives great. Everything's cool. And every time I do something and it doesn't have to be an affair, but it could be an affair. But anytime I do something that I can't tell my wife about, or that I have to hide from my wife, I'm taking a sledgehammer and hitting the car. Now, does the car still drive? Sure. Still drives. But you do that enough, and eventually that car looks fucked up. And then you drive up, and you're like, God damn, this car looks shitty. But then your girlfriend or your wife is like, man, we got such a great car. And then you look at it in your mind, you're like, we don't know, because I fucked it up real hard. Right. Or or what you're doing is you're popping the hood, and you're taking the sledgehammer to a part of the guts of the car, and then you're putting the hood back down, and it may look fine on the outside. And then you try to go on a family vacation to Gatlinburg, and the car won't go. And your wife's going, why won't the car go? It looks fine. I mean, there's no discernible problem. And you're like, oh, I've been hitting the fucking engine with a sledgehammer every day for six months. By the way, zip. <laughs> We're really crushing it with this car analogy, dude. I, was, I, I think we could probably do another six hours on this. That car analogy was just making me think of Rumble and fucking Cell Block 99. Yeah. How great is that opening scene where he fucking he punches the headlight in and then reaches inside and grabs the guts out of it and you're like, this is a person you do not want to fuck with. I love that you just called it Rumble in Cell Block 99. Like you're mixing up Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx with uh, what is it? Craig Zegler's Brawl in Cell Block 99. Oh, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Rumble's the uh, spiritual sequel. I just watched that movie again for the fourth time wow so so good i i we went and saw knives out in the theater over the holiday because we were with my my wife's parents and we got a little break with the kid have you seen knives out yet i was gonna go see it today but we're doing a podcast well you should go see it after this because it's great i want to see it it looks good what do you think of the irishman i mean i you can count me in the in the um column of of martin scorsese fans huge huge fan i just think he's a masterful storyteller i mean it's not it's not his great work, but it is great, dude. 
De Niro, Pesci, Harvey Keitel, Al Pacino. I mean, these dudes are all getting older, and so their sensibilities change, and the way that they pop on the screen changes. It's not as kinetic as Goodfellas, but... I mean, it's Scorsese, and it's those dudes, and it's a great story. Have you seen it yet? I saw it. What'd you think? Here's what I loved about it. It looks great. Like all Scorsese movies, it looks great. But the 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 thing that makes it a joy is Pesci, who you never see. Yeah. You never see Pesci in anything, and he's arguably... Especially when he's playing that kind of character, yeah, scary. Maybe one of the, maybe one of the greatest actors of all time. Yeah, he, he is. He's so he's so good. And De Niro is absolutely one thousand percent believable as that character. Now, the stuff that's hard, that CG is hard, dude. Yeah, it's so like because especially if you're like me, where. Just the tiniest little thing kind of puts you at, like, sets you, like, it sets off some weird thing in my brain that makes me uneasy, and that's going on the whole time. Yeah, you have a, for someone who loves movies as much as you do, you you were strangely sensitive to that shit. Whereas I feel like, for me, I love movies so much, I'm so, I so want to just live in whatever world that someone like Scorsese's made for me to live in, that I forgive, Mm. I forgive so many small things um, not because I'm aloof or not paying attention, but just because I, I want to just believe and inhabit that world. Now, don't get me wrong. If that movie was 12 hours, I'd watch every hour of it. Yeah, like, right. I enjoyed watching it. It was fun to watch. It was just like, uh, why not make a movie where you don't have to use the CGI? I know. I know. Well, he had to He had to make them young, you know? I mean, I, I get right, it. Right, right. Um, but you used young guys, and then if you're going to make a movie about those guys, just make it when they're old. Well, and that's what Coppola did with um, Godfather. Is he didn't? They didn't. And of course, CGI didn't exist in the seventies. But they didn't try to make Brando young. They got fucking De Niro, and he won an Oscar for it because he was so fucking good. He's so good, dude. That's what I hate. You haven't seen Joker yet, have you? No, I haven't. I know he has a cameo in it. That's my least favorite part of Joker is De Niro. Like he's so miscast in that. Do you know what he did? A great cameo he did. I don't know if you remember this because this movie had so much buzz. And it got nominated for like 10 Oscars, didn't win any, is American Hustle. And he had an uncredited cameo in that. Did you ever see American Hustle, the David O. Russell film? I didn't like it. Well, he has a cam- De Niro has this cameo towards the end where I think Jeremy Renner's trying to, I don't know, he's like a mob guy. Anyway, I can't even remember, but it was a great cameo. De Niro is great in Silver Linings Playbook. He's great in the comedies that he's in. What's he not good in? The Joker. Oh, it's right. Real bad <laughs> uh, is it him though? Is it him or is it the movie in the context? Or is he bad in it? I think the movie I don't think the movie's that good. I think the movie's real hacky. I think you put anybody else in there as the Joker and then watch that movie, you're like, oh yeah, this is a hacky piece of shit. But I mean, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is so sublime and so incredible that it makes that movie worth watching. It's like Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York, pretty shitty movie, except when Daniel Day-Lewis is on screen, it is transformative. It's so mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like every line he says and the way he looks and the way he commands the screen makes that wor- movie worth watching. But then when he's not on screen and you see fucking, what's her, who's the chick that's in it? Was it Sharon Stone? No, it's oh, I'm the thinking about the. Qu- I'm thinking about the quick and the dead. Um, 
What's her name? From fucking Charlie's Angels. Uh, um, Not Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz, dude. Whenever she's on screen, you're like, no. And even Leonardo DiCaprio, who's awesome, who I love, who's in everything. Just the way they... The, the way they stylized him in the movie is you're like, come on, no, cut his hair, make him look worse or something. Right. John C. Riley's great in that too. Dude, I just watched, uh, I just watched Hard Eight. I'd never seen it. Hard Eight? Hard Eight must have been Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie. It's with John C. Riley. Um, it's about a gambler. It's it's really good. It's like one of I've never seen it. It's it's worth watching. It's on Amazon Prime for free. Okay, to check. Oh yeah, it says ninety six PTA. That's right. Wow, I've never even heard of this. I only watched it because it had John C. Riley in it. And it had a pretty good review, and then as soon as the uh, opening credits came on, it was like Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm like, what? Here's the other thing. As soon as I saw it was Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm like, okay, the fucking writing is not going to be that great. And sure enough. It's not that great. He's pretty hit or miss. He's a wonderful director. Uh, he's great. And everyone's, I mean, I loved, what was the last thing he did with Daniel Phantom Taylor's? Thread. Loved it. But I I, I've still, to this day, don't like There Will Be Blood. I I would say I'm a PTA fan, but I really, only, if I'm being honest with you and our thousands and millions of listeners out there across the entire world, mostly in China, I uh, I really only like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. I didn't really like Punch Drunk Love. Didn't I hated Inherent Vice. I hated Phantom Thread. I like The Master okay. What else has he got? Uh there's one in I like Punch Drunk Love. I love Ma- I like Magnolia a lot. I like Boogie Nights. I like this Heart Eight. Um and I really like Phantom Thread. But I, here's the reason I like Phantom Thread. I'm that guy's age. That's me. That guy is me. He's not you. Watch that movie when you turn fifty. You're going to like it a lot more. Okay. That's an interesting insight. You still there? Did I lose you? No. Oh, we're just taking a pregnant... We're taking what we like to call in the biz a pregnant pause. No, I'm letting that Marinate? thing that you just said sink into the dry, dry soil yeah. that is my soul. So that it could spring forth new fruits? <laughs> I, I hope I hope there's some some down there that hasn't that, that can still grow in this fucking barren ass fucking because guess what guess what this soil hasn't gotten a lot of water. sunlight water sunlight all the things necessary yeah. for stuff to grow I mean d- don't get me wrong our fans they they do their best when I when I pull the when I pull this the plant out and and present it on stage in in a dark club. They try to they try to water it with that. Mm-hmm. They they try they try they do they do they, they try. Yeah, you know they what they try. They try to do it. They try water the plant. Water the plant. They try, they try to water the plant there, but uh, you know the plant the plant is dead. It looks like it's alive, but uh, that that plant's oh boy. It's like an iceberg. It uh, you see the tip of it and it looks alive, but underneath it's a dead whale. It's a big dead whale. It's like the bonsai plant. I bought that bonsai plant a while back, Uh, and uh, when I bought it, it was so so nice. And then at some point, uh, it uh, looked a little lifeless. And then uh, somebody bumped the table, and all the little uh, pine cones fell off. It's like a car. It's like that El Camino we got. But I was hitting the engine with a sledgehammer for forty years straight, like my dad did. 
My daddy what did accent? that. What accent did you finally land on, dude? I think I'm doing some sort of Bronx accent from the 70s. <laughs> I like it. I don't know, though. I told Tony, hey. Don't hey I was talking of- to Tony. I was talking to Tony the other day, and uh, you know what Tony said? He said, uh... What'd Tony say? Nah, forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You're setting up this big thing that Tony said, and then you're like, ah, forget about it. You know, I was listening to a, uh, I hate Mark Maron so much, but he had Rick Baker on. Rick Rick Baker is this amazing um, uh, makeup artist. He's worked on everything. He did Thriller, and he did uh, The Exorcist, and Videodrome, David Cronenberg stuff. But he also did Coming to America, and he turned, you know, the, the scene with Eddie Murphy plays the white Jewish guy. Which, that, that was an amazing transformation. Speaking of shitty CGI, this is like all real practical stuff in the late 80s. Um, how do you think Coming to America has held up? You watched that recently? I have not watched it in, in quite some time. You will laugh real hard because it's held up really well. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I, I like me some, some Eddie Murphy back in the day for sure. He was on fucking fire his story is so strange you know he's got a new movie on netflix that's actually really good i watched it what'd you think the i am dolomite uh it was okay he just puts so much heart he puts a lot of heart into his shit it's it's surprising he can really make a story like that surprisingly emotional it's it's bizarre to me how you know like you have somebody like tom hanks who started out doing comedies Mm -hmm. and then became this really respected, um, serious actor um, for the last 20 years. I feel like Eddie Murphy could have gone in that direction. Instead, he just said, I'm just going to hammer these checks that Disney's given me with like Doolittle mm-hmm. and Meet the Clumps and all this bullshit. And he's just done so much bullshit that I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And even like This is Dolomite, it's like, it's okay. I agree with you. I think he does have the chops to be a great dramatic actor, and he, for whatever reason, didn't go... Well, I think because he loves comedy. Because unlike Tom Hanks, Eddie Murphy started as a stand-up. And that's where his heart was, was stand-up. And his hero was Richard Pryor. Tom Hanks was always an actor. Tom Hanks' first thing was fucking bosom buddies, dude. He wasn't working clubs. That's the the difference. Yeah, yeah, I I know. And and, uh, I'm with you, but... Yeah, the other thing about uh, the other thing about Eddie Murphy that's hard for me is he's had so much plastic surgery at this point that it's hard for me to watch him. He looks weird, yeah. It's weird. Did you see him on Jerry on Comedians and Cars getting coffee? I loved it so much. And then there's also for you to check out if you hadn't seen it, him and Jerry do like a an hour long sit down Q and A that you can find. It'll be in the little column of the YouTube if you're watching it there. But I loved his Comedians and Cars getting coffee. Yeah, I, I did too. Um, the thing that was weird about it was a it wasn't funny. There, there, I hardly laughed it's at pretty all. Pretty serious, um, yeah. Uh, but the thing that was weird is just the fact that he's terrified of doing comedy again because he 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 killed it. Well, he the problem is he killed it so hard. Those two specials are two of the greatest stand up specials of all time, and he just knows he he just knows he's not going to be able to come up with an hour that's that good ever again. Absolutely. Legendary. I think songwriting and comedy are absolutely similar in that you could stand up on stage and make up a song on the spot. And there's something about making up a song on, on stage on the spot that has like, if you can make stuff rhyme 
and have it make sense on stage, that's all you need to do if you're making it up. Same with being funny. If you can just happen to be funny, that's fine. But you can't expect to go up in front of a cold audience and make up shit and have them love you. Yeah. Like you can't do it with songs and you can't do it with comedy. You, It's a writer's thing. You have to figure out what you're- You have to write. You have to be a writer. You have to write it. Then you have to go perform it over and over again until you can, like acting- so you can convince the audience that this is the first time you're telling it, even though you've told it a thousand times. Right. So you got to be able to do both. And same with the song. Like, even though you wrote the song six months ago, you got to sell it on stage. Yeah. Um, like you just wrote it on the spot. So they're very similar in that regard. And if you stop writing songs and then st- start again, you're fucked. Well, there's a muscle. Yeah, there's a muscle. You have to keep doing it. Like people that write a record and then don't write for two years and then try to start writing again, I'm like, uh, no way. No way is that going to be good. And I think that's a, the reason why a lot of people end up, they stop making albums or definitely stop making good albums. But what's interesting, yeah, you're. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And what I think so interesting about it is I do fully believe that Eddie Murphy is a guy like me or you where what's so crazy about him not doing it for a while is that he's one of these guys who probably has to do it. Because when he when he was segueing out of stand-up into his film career, I mean, he wrote Harlem Nights. He wrote Coming to America. He was writing these movies. And yeah. then Beverly Hills Cop happened, and Golden Child happened, and it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, dude, in the 90s with the Nutty Professor shit, it was just stratosphere. And he became rich and sort of complacent. But he's always that guy. I, I believe that he's a true artist. He needs to write. It's a shame that he hasn't been writing material this whole time, you know? Right. Because you're right. He, he's worried about it com- coming out and it not being great. But you know who did went away for a while and came back and was still great? It's Chappelle. Yeah, but I don't think he ever stopped, really. Well, he took several years off, man. He was kind of AWOL for like three or four years. Yeah, he's, he stopped performing. But I guarantee you, during that whole time, he had an entourage and he was always like, being funny. Hell yeah, he had an entourage. And, he had and, Tony with him. Well, and keeping track of what he was writing. And, and Tony! And, like, I don't think he, you know what I mean? I don't think he, like, stopped being funny and stopped being Chappelle. Like, he's just that guy. Well, there's also, he came back and did some stand-up, and it was really rough, because he was, like, doing the shit where he would just sit on stage for 40 minutes and wait for the clock to run down. He was having, like, public meltdowns and shit. Right. But he's at the top of his game again. He's fucking crushing it, too. And what's interesting to me is when someone like Jerry Seinfeld, and we got to wrap this up, but Jerry Seinfeld and and someone like Eddie Murphy are having a conversation. In that Q&A sit-down that I mentioned, you guys got to go check it out. It's so interesting to see them talk about comedy. They start having this conversation about who are the greatest comics currently, like contemporary contemporary comics. Neither of them mention Chappelle, which it seems very um, intentionally he seems intentionally omitted from that conversation. So I don't know if he's kind of burned bridges with him. Dude, Chappelle hasn't been on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Yeah, yes. He has? Yep. Oh, well, everything I said is a lie. <laughs> uh, it's I, it's a weird one, though. It is a weird one. Um, Chappelle's socially awkward. He's a socially awkward guy. And him and Jerry Seinfeld are two... I wouldn't say polar opposites. They're just different types of people. Like they're they're coming at it from different different angles, and uh, it's apparent in that in that uh, comedians and cars. Well, we're out of time. We got to go. Thanks for everyone for checking in. We'll see you on the flip flop. We're a day late uh, this week, but 
what can we say the holidays happened? Go listen to our other two podcasts, The Song Club and Metal Up Your Podcast. We do read emails occasionally. We try to get to every one of them written to us, Bob and Clint at gmail.com. And with that, we'll get the fuck out of here and say peace. Peace.